so mainly, mainly what I've done mm-hmm. uh, is watch movies. I'm, I'm on, I'm on a story high. I've witnessed a 12-hour marathon of the Lord of the Rings extended edition uh, from nine o'clock at night to nine o'clock in the morning. I emerged from that journey a better human and also into a London covered with snow. When I got up and saw it was snowing and thought about you walking out of the cinema into that, I was quite jealous of how magical it would be. Uh, and those movies hold up. Those movies, I mean, they, in terms of time, they hold up a lot of space. I don't know. I don't know. I was going to make a time and space joke. Didn't work. Nothing I, there. I yes. rewatched the first one a while ago. I don't remember if it was with you or not. No. I'm guessing not because by the look on your face. But I found when they went to the Elfie place... Yes. They, that it looked kind of weirdly like a Hallmark card and it didn't, it just, it looked very ancient in terms of the the special effects and the colouring. I'm with you, except that, that I don't think that's ancient. They, yes, Peter Jackson went for that look in the elfish places. The, the look of that like partakes of the kind of, the tail end of the kind of Celtic mid-90s fantasy Right, Burgeoning, the calls which could is... be playing on a hill in the distance. Anya, Inya? Inya, Inya. is the singer for yeah. the first movie, and that was kind of the peak of that moment. And when I saw them again, it is it was that look that is a bit of all of them. There's a there's a, a kind of burnished glow to so many things in Lord of the Rings, including Elijah Wood's eyes. But but oh, anyway, yeah, the whole point, like those special effects, that's not ancient. That's just. It's you know, just the look. Choice, right? Yeah, but it, yeah, but it does look. It makes it. It contributes to it looking dated. Was my feeling. Oh yeah, you've used that word a lot recently. I think. What does dated mean to you? D- does it mean old or does it mean of a specific time? I think like when, like there's a specific. I guess in the same way that fashion and colors that we wear go through go through trends. So does the way film is retouched and colored and the kind of lenses people use and the kind of lighting people use so it's not only that uh, technology changes over time but also all of those decisions that they're making about the the set and the lights and the the film quality that they use contribute to her sort of an a um a sense a sense of it you know like almost something that you can physically touch you know whether it feels goopy or sweet or clinical all these kinds of things and and I think that you know you're absolutely right it was partaking of this kind of rich slightly sweet thing saccharine thing that was the the trend at the time part of what was jarring to me when I first went back was how distinctive it looked yes it partakes a bit of that fantasy element but the way Peter Jackson did it, coming as somebody that came from like B-movie and horror, like it, it stood out to me the first time I saw it too. It was like I had the same experience both times of having to get used to the way Peter Jackson decided to render his universe. And particularly once you get to the end of the first film for me and into the second, that's just the way the movies look. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. It didn't remind me of that Shania Twain video we watched the other day where she's rocking the double denim in the 90s. I wonder if a movie like Lord of the Rings may feel dated to you because it was so distinctive and ubiquitous and completed within a three-year period. 
that it, it firmly marks time. that time to you. Yeah, 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 yeah totally. It's one of the things I love about watching movies across different time periods, though, is how you can kind of reach into that period through the quality of the film or the quality of the coloring. Like, we watched a thing the other day from Vox on how The Wizard of Oz was made and particularly how the colors in it were created by Technicolor. Yes, I thought you were going to go for the name of that lady, but alas, we've forgotten her name. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I forget. Yeah, whoever, put, it, put it in the show notes. one of the she was she was the queen of Technicolor and would essentially come into every movie where they were using Technicolor techniques and and tell the directors exactly what they should be doing. But it was this elaborate construction where they had to use three different cameras, run three different films, and then like, put the films together um, after the filming. Uh, but that process, that thing that they did to it gave it this incredible saturation but it wasn't just that the process gave it the saturation it's that she came in and told the directors you know the higher saturated colors you use the better the film would look and so she was kind of casting or dressing the actors in the same way and so she created this look of the period yeah i wish and maybe there exists a book that documented those people that aren't the directors or the writers, uh, maybe not the cinematographers, who somehow their contribution created what we think of as the way movies look. Because movies are a fascinating beast. And that, you know, technology kind of shapes art in general, like, because it shapes the way we retrieve it, retrieve it, receive it as people who love art, but it shapes the way people make it because they have these tools. But then they're like people in the movie business who function as different kind of technological tools that somehow their influence becomes a similar kind of influence as a new camera is invented. The talk, discussion of colour is actually a perfect segue into our topic of discussion today, which is readers slash viewers home alone the movie someone watching us <laughs> are they in this painting yeah but we don't normally describe our listeners as listeners we describe them as readers because they're reading um, our stories yeah yeah, yeah. So you do you do you, do you are you are you familiar with the fact that particularly uh at university uh, grad school where you study literature whatever i'm guessing the answer is going to be no <laughs> uh well maybe it will be that you be, you you describe everything as a text a movie is a text a street is a text everything is to be read no i'm definitely not familiar with that okay anyway so that's what i'm going to be doing today i will be reading home alone okay through the lens <laughs> of a uh, 10 year old terror and nice so Today's discuss today's holiday episode is all about Home Alone and uh we rewatched it a couple of weeks ago in preparation for this and it was just as full of joy and happiness as my ten year old uh self remembered. Yeah, more terror than I remembered. Right. <laughs> so just in case there's anybody out there who hasn't seen it, should I give a little a little pricey of the story, the two-line version? Uh, sure, if you've got a two-line version, that'll be amazing. When I tweet it later, I will try to come up with a gif that sums it up in one Oh, you know it's going to be Kevin loop. screaming. Surely. Maybe. Um, so Home Alone is the story of Kevin, a 10-year-old boy who is left behind when his parents, siblings, aunt, 
uncle, cousins and further extended family go off together on holiday to Paris for Christmas. And it's never exactly clear if they're just forgetful, if there really is magic at work. So so he, he gets left behind at Christmas and he has to go from this kid who is kind of a pain in the ass and is continually like, having these low-level fights and frictions with his family to somebody who protects his house and, you know, therefore his family's identity uh, against these predators and burglars who come to try and take him down. Yeah, I think one of the two things I noticed that I had forgotten, one was the amount of time spent between Kevin and his family before they abandon him, which is obvious in retrospect. You you need to build uh, a story of Kevin and his family hating each other so that then him being left alone can work a transformation both in him and his family and everyone's happy at the end. And that, in that way, I mean, it's so, you could, it's almost dated to use the word you were using before because I associate that, that narrative of family strife and broken and coming together. There's a particular... Um, I don't know how to say it, but like that, that story is of course an old and timeless story that continues to be made, but there's a certain color to it that I associate with the eighties and nineties and Spielberg and John Hughes, where mm-hmm. the narrative was all about bringing the family somehow making the family hold again by the end. It could be that I, that color comes from the fact that I was a kid watching those movies at a time. And so the story of a family being broken and made whole felt very timely to me uh, as a child. Uh, and the other thing I noticed was how how much the movie makes use of the same technique that Children of Men uses or Carmen Maria Machado uses. I had not remembered how much TV plays a role in this movie. <laughs> yeah. They're all over the background at the beginning with Kevin and his family showing other old holiday classic movies to get you in the space. And then later... It's what Kevin uses. He uses this old film that he's recorded of a, some kind of gangstery thing happening that he plays in order to scare off the, the burglars. And I, you know, as a kid, I just, it didn't even strike me as such a self-conscious, joyous celebration of both the medium of like Christmas holiday movies that John Hughes wanted to make and the way that like, Kevin uses those stories to protect himself and to right, protect his yeah. home They're like, he's like okay this is the fabric of my sense of of being part of this family like these movies mm-hmm. are part of the this family's identity and they will protect me i think the reason i thought that it was a perfect segue we were, when we were talking about color was because we watched some of the extras that came with the iTunes movie and Chris Columbus, the director, talked a lot about wanting to make this into a classic. He wanted it to feel timeless immediately. He wanted it to be the kind of thing that people are still talking about 25 years later. I'm like, yep, okay, job done. <laughs> yes, well done. <laughs> fulfilling that. And I think that one of the ways he did that was by, uh, presumably his choice of film stock, I don't exactly, I'm not, up with the details of that but the way he chose the colors and the fashions inside of the movie the you know no one's wearing acid wash jeans even though it's 1990 they're all in very kind of classic 
jeans and thick jumpers and long flowing coats. They live in a house where no piece of furniture looked like it was bought inside of the last 60 years. You know, it's all very classically designed. The colours are all in that kind of um, Dickensian palette, reds and greens and browns and rich, rich thick colours. Um, and and it the way that all of that plays out is that you immediately, you know, you don't feel distant from it. It doesn't feel like it's from another time. It feels like it could be a movie that came out yesterday. There was too, in those extras, a, a discussion of wanting to capture the feeling of those old holiday movies like Miracle on 34th Street, where the, f- the fact that it was a Christmas movie meant, like you alluded to at the beginning, that there was some magic, some whiff of the otherworldly, of mm-hmm. something out of the norm that had visited this family or this place, much as in Gremlins mm-hmm. or, or Die Hard, both movies that partake <laughs> of Christmas magic. Um, it, it builds up to the, the hate between Kevin and his family. The strife does build up to him wishing for them to leave, which I love the way you said it, that it's never entirely clear because it's kind of entirely clear both ways. One, of course there is no magic. They forgot him because his older sister miscounted but it's also entirely clear from the rules of Christmas movie, it is obviously magic. Yeah, completely like, wish fulfillment. Yeah. yeah. I, I remembered as a kid so much, more than anything else, really, more than the slapstick, uh, possibly a similar amount to the terror we'll get to in a minute, was the storyline with the old man who is thought to be a scary murderer. Molly. Another deep Christmas reference. Molly is the name of one of the... Ghosts oh yeah yeah it was his name Christmas marley Carol? old yeah. man marley yeah oh there you go uh it's all intertextuality um and there's a scene near the end of the arc between the old man and kevin where kevin has reached this real low point and he's out in the world and he walks into a church and there's just something about that the empty church space and the golden light and the singing of the choir that it hits exactly the note they, they wanted of this kind of old, ancient sense of, of wonder that I think is what kind of gives Home Alone that, that, that extra burst that makes you like want to watch it again. Because the, the slapstick stuff is, is funny. But you, wouldn't, you wouldn't keep going back to it year after year for the slapstick. No, I think it's absolutely true. And that Marley storyline where, you know, he starts off being this scary old man that Kevin's brother tells him about. Then Kevin bumps into him in the street and runs away afraid. Then Kevin bumps into him in this church. And Marley is watching his estranged granddaughter sing in the choir because he's not welcome at the real performance because he and his son fell out. And Kevin's like, you know what? You guys should make up. You should call him. And that emotional arc for Marley is what gives us the kind of understanding of what Kevin's going through. It deepens his arc of understanding like, yeah, you guys are all idiots, but then I'm going to come through that and um, forge this real connection with you. But without that Marley story, it wouldn't be anything. No. And one of the fascinating things about watching the extra was that um, it wasn't part of the original script. It was something that you know, Chris Columbus kind of wedged in there 
I don't know if it was after they started filming or, you know, in some kind of rewrite beforehand, but it totally makes it. Yeah, yeah, I was surprised because it seems like such a, a writerly thing to do. Like the simple idea that, you know, you should have your, your main character struggling with something and then you need other side characters who are struggling with the conflict as well because it's just great. It, like, it's just crafty. It's just great <laughs> crafty. crafty stuff. Literally crafty. Um, because oh, you I don't like want your, your main character to figure out their own problem. You need them to figure out someone else's problem and then figuring out someone else's problem, figure out their own. Because hearing you describe that, I was like, oh, Home Alone does that, that magic trick that you want all stories to do which is to have its title suddenly change in your head. Like, as soon as you were describing that, I was like, oh, you know who really is home alone at Christmas? Old Man Marley. Yeah. He's home alone, too. And, and he wasn't accidentally left. He was deliberately left. Yeah. And it's through Kevin coming to understand how much he misses his family that he can offer something. And I think there's something deliciously sweet about a moment like that that works where you have such a wide gap of time these different generations of people sharing wisdom back and forth yeah i love i am a complete sucker for an older person younger child kind of friendship storyline for sure um so when i was thinking about this movie before we rewatched it what i remember from it is all of the slapstick and booby traps that kevin sets around the house to uh, defeat the burglars Though the he sets paint cans swinging from the banister to knock them in the face, he sets one of them on fire, he uh, lets his brother's tarantula loose on them, he drops an iron on one of their faces. And I was so shocked that when we saw the movie, that sequence is about 15-20 minutes towards the end. It's really not the heart, it's this kind of climactic scene of him, of Kevin... You know, putting himself on the line to defend his family's castle um but it's not it's not the fundamental uh heart of the story in the way that i remembered it to be oh it functions exactly like a climax it functions as a release because this terror that i've been alluding to is i did not realize how seeing the movie when i guess i must have been 10 years old had a profound impact on me not just in that at one time, I really liked sports, and there's a Michael Jordan life-size cardboard cutout in this movie that I remembered, oh yeah, I had that. Why did I have that? Is it because it was in Home Alone? I don't know, maybe. Also watching this, I the, the characters, Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern, the burglar characters, before you get to the slapstick, really have a menace to them. There's really something scary about them uh, and the way they interact with the world. And there was a scene where Kevin is decorating his tree alone in his house, as foretold by the title Home Alone. And there's a window right behind Kevin, and Joe Pesci's face comes into the window, and Pesci has a very big, distinctive face, and it occupies a good 35% of that window. <laughs> it's like a full moon. Yes, full moon. right behind unknowing Kevin. Um, and all of these things suddenly connected in my mind. As a child, I kept having this recurring dream of this stranger's face in a window that followed me around everywhere that scared me into waking. I was always afraid of our house being broken into, always afraid of seeing unto a few months ago when I saw an episode of Hannibal where somebody's <laughs> scary face was in the window and I couldn't shake it. So hopefully seeing Home Alone and realizing that's the source 
will help break me (laughs) it's just joe pesci (laughs) i'd been away for the weekend and i got home on sunday morning and chris was looking red-eyed and slightly shaky and i was like what's up so i haven't been to sleep because hannibal faces window we had no curtains in our bedroom at that point so i was like okay when into action i think at about 36 hours we had curtains up i was like it's okay it's all safe now the other thing i wanted to talk about was booby traps there is something eternally appealing to me about booby traps and i'm trying to figure i was is it the word booby (laughs) i mean that is a big part of it yeah um and i was trying to figure out what it is like possibly as you said it's watching these uh 80s 90s movies as a kid and feeling excited by them and uh, the ones with booby traps i'm thinking this one i'm thinking the goonies i'm thinking indiana jones and those were the three off the top of my head but what what is it and i think that it is like uh somewhat like a horror movie it's the surprise but then like a good joke there's always um it's not just surprise it's always kind of um unexpected and witty as well that's what's so joyful about the booby traps and those kinds of movies and it gives provides a way for people of completely unequal strength to fight across time or space or you know their their physical prowess and that is exciting Yes, yeah, yeah. Not to not to libertage this with too much Americanness. <laughs> what? The Honey I Shrink the Kids has that as well. Not booby traps, but the the kind of ingenuity, the kind of contraptions, the kind of everyday objects transformed into something magical, which is amazing. And you know, kind of pushing like Indiana Jones, like those booby traps feel a bit different in that they were set by people a long time ago to protect something and like they're cool but like what you're saying about like the booby traps and goonies the contraptions and honey i shrunk the kids are this kind of leveling of a playing field where people have different power and i think i do associate that with like that time of, of childhood and i think i may when you described it it made me think about um the thing we saw john green talking about recently in crash course u.s history about one of the only revolutionary ideas from the American Revolution um, that continues to be struggled over is this idea of a equality, not necessarily equality of races or equality of genders, but the idea that no longer should birth define your position in the world. That no matter where you were born, you should you should just you just gotta you just gotta make some. You just stuff gotta up. figure it out. Yeah, you just gotta figure it out and. There is something to that, like in in Goonies and stuff, because it's almost always kids. It's almost always somebody. Figuring out their place. Yeah. 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 And figuring out how to fight for themselves and how to kill adults without <laughs> killing them. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year's, readers. Happy New Happy New Year? <laughs> Happy New Year, readers. <laughs> I think you should include the include the bloopers. <laughs> okay, we'll include the bloopers. Happy Schnoo Year. Happy Shoo. <laughs>